O God, you are my God. Earnestly, I seek you. My soul thirsts for you. My flesh faints for you, as in a dry and weary land where there is no water. So I have looked upon you in the sanctuary, beholding your power and glory, because your steadfast love is better than life. My lips will praise you, so I will bless you as long as I live in your name, I will lift my hands. My soul will be satisfied as with fat and rich food, and my mouth will praise you with joyful lips. When I remember you upon my bed and meditate on you in the watches of the night, for you have been my help. In the shadow of your wings, I will sing for joy. My soul clings to you. Your right hand upholds me. But those who seek to destroy my life shall go down into the depths of the earth. They shall be given over to the power of the sword. They shall be a portion for jackals. But the king shall rejoice in God. All who swear by him shall exult, for the mouths of liars will be stopped. The word of the Lord. We're beginning a new series today on prayer. This is actually a pretty hot topic. Spirituality is in vogue. Uh, today in our culture, and that's actually surprising to a lot of people. Um, for many decades, we've had a theory or a narrative in our culture called the secularization theory. Secularization theory is a theory that says that as our world has become more technologically advanced, as it's become more scientifically advanced, uh, as our world has become more educated and sophisticated and modernized, that eventually all religious activity is just going to die away. This is actually the undisputed position, or has been the undisputed position of all manner of scholars and academics and sociologists for many, many decades now. But the surprising thing is the exact opposite has occurred. In fact, there was an article in the Washington Post a few years ago uh, that was looking at a lot of the most recent research uh, statistics and things throughout the whole world. And the article says that um, instead of religion, religion going away, it's actually getting um, larger all over the world, that religion is not dying out, it's actually increasing throughout the world, so much so that even the biggest proponents uh, of secularization theory over the last several decades, many of them have abandoned it completely and said, you know, we thought this is the way the world was going, we thought that this is what was going to happen in the world, but we were wrong. So even here in the United States, uh, many reports have indicated that levels of formal participation, formal religious activity, uh, levels of religious activity are actually down in our country, and yet many of those reports indicate that a lot of those people don't necessarily disbelieve in God, they're just not going to church. You know, so for instance, um, uh, in Long Island, New York, 
uh, is actually one of the centers of the world for spiritual channeling, things like mediums and seances and palm readers. Now, we're talking about sophisticated, educated New Yorkers here, okay? Um, human beings are just as spiritually thirsty as they've ever been. So even here in the Central West End, very secular, educated, progressive place, we live in the shadow of Washington University, one of the most um, esteemed secular um, institutions in the nation, maybe even in the world. Very secular, progressive, educated community that we live in. You can walk down to Whole Foods Market right now, and um, you can buy not one, but two separate publications that are entirely devoted to teaching you how to practice mindfulness meditation. Human beings are just as spiritually thirsty today as we've ever been. That means that, that even though we become more technologically advanced, no matter how scientifically advanced we've become, um, no matter how educated and sophisticated and modernized we've become, instead of that thirst for the sacred and the transcendent and the divine just dying away, it's actually gotten stronger. Human beings are just as spiritually thirsty today as they've ever been. So, uh, you know, for instance, I talk to a lot of people um, because I'm a pastor, and uh, a lot of times I'll be talking to people and they'll tell me, you know, I consider myself to be a spiritual person, but not necessarily religious. And when I ask them, tell me, what does spirituality mean to you? A lot of times, by far the most common answer is people will say, spirituality to me means a yearning to feel connected to something bigger than myself. People want to know, they want to experience a sense of being connected to something or someone bigger than themselves. Do you ever yearn to feel like you're connected to something or someone bigger than yourself? Prayer is one of the main ways that happens. And uh, so over the next several weeks, we're going to look at it by spending time in um, what's famously known as the prayer book of the Bible, the Psalms. If you want to know what prayer is, if you want to know how to do it, you need a teacher. Psalms is the school of prayer. So this morning, we're going to spend uh, a little bit of time, just as an introduction, looking at this very famous psalm, Psalm 63, and seeing what it has to teach us about some of the basic introductory uh, facets of prayer. And we're going to see three things about prayer this morning. We're going to see the purpose of prayer, the practice of prayer, and lastly, the power for prayer, okay? The purpose, the practice and the power of prayer. I'm a Presbyterian, so I like peace. <laughs> and I like alliteration. But it also helps you to remember it. So, first, the purpose of prayer. Uh, uh, prayer begins by discovering that you're thirsty for God. This is the primary metaphor in this psalm. Uh, did you notice in your bulletin, it's actually printed for you right um, before verse 1. Look at your bulletin. It says, there's a title there, and it says, A Psalm of David when he was in the wilderness of Judah you will not be able to understand this psalm completely unless you understand this title. What does that mean when it says he was in the wilderness of Judah? David was the great king of Israel, but at a certain point in his life, his son Absalom decided he wanted to take over the kingdom, so he raised an army and staged a coup. And when this psalm is taking place, the situation it describes is a time when David is on the run for his life, He's been driven out of the city of Jerusalem and into the wilderness, and his whole life is falling apart. He's lost his kingdom, his throne, his family, his people. In fact, it looks like he's about to lose his life. And at this point in his life, everything is falling apart, and he's desperate. 
In fact, you can see that in the language that he uses right there in the beginning. He says, my soul thirsts, my body faints, as in a dry and weary land where there is no water. His soul is crying out for water. Now, the thing we need to understand about this is, I know our translation says the wilderness. He's in the wilderness. But when we think of wilderness, a lot of times we think of, you know, little trees and streams running through the forest and little birdies chirping in the trees. That's not this kind of wilderness. The Hebrew word for wilderness is a word that means the desert. It's hot, arid, dry, barren, empty, and completely devoid of water. And so you can see that, David reflecting that in this psalm. He's crying out for water. Now, probably very few of us, I'm guessing, have ever um, come even close to experiencing what it's like to die of thirst. Um, but in, a, in an arid desert culture or climate like this, this, this would have been a much more common experience for people in the Bible. When your body goes into extreme dehydration, I'm told, uh, what happens is your body starts to shut down. It, you start to go crazy, really. I mean, you start hallucinating. Um, if you get anywhere near any kind of moisture, your body will just start reaching out for it. So that even things that you would never normally put in your mouth, your body will just start reaching out for these things because your body's crying out for water. This psalm is saying that's a picture of our soul's need for God. That our soul needs God the way your body needs water. So think about where David is at at this point in his life. He's lost everything. He's on the run for his life. And if that were you, you know, what would you be praying for? God, help me. God, get me out of this trouble. God, save my life. I know that's what I would be praying for. For most people, prayer begins in trouble. Prayer begins because your life is in trouble, and so you've got a need, a challenge, a difficulty. Something's blown up in your life, and you need help with it. And listen, that's okay. In fact, as we go throughout this series, we're actually going to spend time in the next several weeks looking at how you pray through different difficulties and challenges in your life. Things like grief or tears or suffering or anger or fear, things like that. But this psalm is showing us that help with those things is not what you need most. It's not the most important thing. What is David praying for? I mean, think about where he's at. His life is completely fallen apart, so much so that that he's in danger of losing his very life. But what is he actually praying for here? He's not praying that God would restore his kingdom or his throne or his life or his family. He's not praying for courage or strength or help and, you know, help get me through this trouble. David does not pray, God, save my life. He prays, God, your love is better than life. More than anything else in the world, God, I need you. That's what he's saying. A lot of times, prayer begins in trouble. You've got a need. There's an emptiness. And, and the trouble is that when you're that thirsty, when you have that kind of need in your life, a lot of times we'll just pour anything in there to, in order to satisfy that thirst. Even though water is really the only thing that will satisfy us. You know, maple syrup is a wonderful thing. But if you're dying of thirst and you try to satisfy that thirst with maple syrup, it's actually going to make it worse. Listen, a lot of times, prayer begins in trouble, but all true prayer really comes alive when you discover that what you're really thirsty for is God. I mean, think about it. What is thirst? By definition, thirst is an experience of the absence of water, right? Thirst is an experience of the absence of water, but it's also an awareness of your need for water. 
In the same way, your thirst for God is an experience of God's absence, but it is also an awareness of his presence. You wouldn't even be thirsting for God if he weren't already at work in your life, drawing you to himself. In the same way that when you're thirsty for water, you know that water is what you need. Your experience of the absence is is an awareness of the presence. So we all thirst for God all the time, even though we may not recognize it that way. A lot of people I talk to, again, uh, as a pastor will tell me, I don't really feel this need for God, this need for the divine or the sacred or the transcendent. That's because we're already pouring all kinds of other things into our lives, trying to satisfy this spiritual thirst that we have. The problem is that none of those things really can satisfy our thirst. That's why we're always continuing to be thirsty. Um, Nobody ever put this better than C.S. Lewis. I was realizing as I was coming into this sermon that I haven't given you a really good C.S. Lewis quote in several weeks. So (laughs) I recognize you're probably thirsty for that. So, um, But in his little book, Mere Christianity, C.S. Lewis puts this so well. He says, most people, if they had really learned to look into their own hearts, they would know that they do want something that cannot be had in this world. There are all sorts of things in this world that offer to give it to you, but they never quite keep their promise. The longings which arise in us when we first fall in love or first think of some foreign country or first take up some subject that excites us, those are longings which no marriage, no travel, no learning can really satisfy. There was something we grasped at in that first moment of longing which just fades away in the reality. But creatures are not born with desires unless satisfaction for those desires exists. He says, a baby feels hunger. Well, there's such a thing as food. A duckling wants to swim. Well, there's such a thing as water. People feel sexual desire. Well, there's such a thing as sex. If I find in myself a desire which no experience in this world can satisfy, the most probable explanation is that I was made for another world. If you experience a thirst for something which nothing in this world can satisfy, that thirst is itself an experience of God's presence in your life, you wouldn't be experiencing the thirst if God were not already at work in your life. So for instance, I read a fascinating essay a couple of years ago in Time Magazine uh, by a woman named Susanna Schrobsdorf. Um, Susanna Schrobsdorf uh, describes herself as one of the 56 million people in our country right now who, when surveyed about their religious affiliation, she would check the box that says none, no religious affiliation. It's a growing demographic in our country. She describes herself as an agnostic, and she says that there's just this smallish space where faith might fit into my life. But then she says something very interesting towards the end of the article. She starts talking about her mother and how when her mother, who was a very religious person, when her mother was dying, she starts talking about that dying process for her mom. And she says this, my mother had the certainty that she would go, quote, home, as she called it. It was a comfort that I envied as I watched her slip away a few days after Christmas. I could be grateful for the kindness of nurses and drugs like morphine, but when she was gone, it felt like a void had opened up. Then, as now, I longed for faith. That essential human need might just be proof that God exists, that built-in yearning is there because there's something worth yearning for. This is an agnostic woman saying this. That yearning is there because there's something or someone 
worth yearning for. Your thirst for God is an experience of his presence. You wouldn't even thirst for him if he weren't already at work in your life. Friends, prayer often begins in trouble, but all true prayer comes alive when you discover that you're really thirsty for God. And the purpose of prayer, therefore, is to recenter your life on God, to recenter, to refocus, to reorient your heart, your life, your mind, your ambitions, your desires, the deepest parts of your being, to reorient and refocus all of those things back on God. It's the purpose of prayer. But the next thing we need to see this morning is the practice of prayer. Now, we're just looking at some basic introductory concepts this morning, even in this whole series you know, we are not going to cover prayer exhaustively. But let me just offer you a few basic introductory concepts for us. There are three things that David does in this prayer that we all need to learn to do also if we're really going to learn to pray. And the three things are this, meditation, valuation, and articulation. I'll explain what those mean. Meditation, valuation, and articulation. Okay, first, meditation. In verse 6, notice David says, I remember you on my bed, and I meditate on you in the watches of the night. Have you ever had one of those sleepless nights? You can't sleep. What do you do when you're having a sleepless night? What do you think about? What do you meditate on? David says, I meditated on God. So now what exactly is he meditating on? You see it throughout the psalm, but for instance, in verses 2 or 3, he says, I'm beholding your power, God. I'm beholding your glory, I'm beholding your love. These are the things that David's meditating on. Now, here's what this means. David is not just saying, God, you're great, or God, you're awesome. You're an awesome God. He's actually breaking it down into parts. He's breaking these things apart, and he's meditating on these different aspects of God. He's not just saying that God is great or awesome. He's saying why. So you could think of it like this. There's a hit show on Broadway right now called Dear Evan Hansen, wonderful music. Um, it's a show that's about um, an anxious, awkward, overly medicated high schooler named Evan Hansen who's in love with a girl named Zoe, but he's terrified to tell her how he really feels about her. So um, he pretends that um, her brother is his best friend and that her brother has told him all kinds of things that are really awesome about Zoe. And so he says to her, you know, your brother thinks you're awesome. It gives him a chance to kind of express himself to Zoe without revealing his own inner feelings for her. So he says, your brother thinks you're awesome. And she says, my brother thinks that I'm awesome. And he says, oh, definitely. And she says, how? And then Evan begins to sing this song. He begins to sing about how her smile makes people feel and about how she scribbles stars on the cuffs of her jeans when she's bored, and how she likes to still fill out the quizzes in the teen magazines, and how she loves to dance like nobody in the world is watching her. What's he doing? He's not just saying, you're awesome. He's saying, why? He's bringing it down into parts. He's meditating. That's exactly what David is doing in this psalm. And friends, that's exactly what we need to do in order to learn how to really pray. Because what you need to do is you start thinking through the specifically different aspects of God's being, his character, his attributes, his character qualities. You know, what is God's power? How is his power different than his glory? What's the difference between those two things? How are both of those things different from God's love? What are the different ways that God expresses his love? There are all these different aspects of God's being. 
And, and meditation means you start thinking about those things. You start breaking them apart and thinking about them specifically. And we're going to talk more about this in the weeks to come, but that's one of the first things we have to do. But that leads to the next thing we do, okay? So first is meditation, but secondly is valuation. And here's what this means. It's one thing to meditate on the aspect of God's character. Maybe you make a list, you name them, you write them down, you think about them. It's one thing to meditate on those different aspects. It's another thing to assign value to those things. It's another thing to actually ascribe worth and value to those things. And especially the way you do that is by comparing them with something else. So for instance, if you're a realtor and you go to appraise a house, the value of a house, the way you do that is you compare it to other houses in the neighborhood and you are able to assign a value to that current house. That's exactly what David is doing in this psalm. Look at verse 3. He's talking about God's love, but notice he doesn't just talk about God's love. He compares God's love to something else. He says, God, your love is better than life. What's he doing? He's comparing God's love to life itself, and he's assigning a value to it. He's saying, your love is better than life itself. You, You know what he's doing? He's working out the implications of God's love, and then he's applying it to his life situation. So he's saying, yeah, my life is falling apart. I'm terrified. I don't know what to do about it. But wait a minute. What about God's love? God's love is worth anything in this world. God's love is worth even more than my own life. And if I have God's love in my life, then why am I so afraid about everything that's going on in my life? He's assigning value to it. He's working out the implications, and then he's applying it to his life situation. So for you, When you pray, first you meditate. You think about these different aspects or facets of God's character and his being. But then you start assigning value to those things. You know our word worship comes from the old English word worth-ship? That means um, to assign value, to assign worth or value to something, to ascribe worth to something. That's what worship is. You're assigning value to the different aspects of who God is. So For instance, maybe you're worried about what people think about you and it's kind of keeping you up at night. So what you do is is you go to God in prayer, but here's the way you do it. You you start meditating on God's glory and and you think to yourself, okay, I'm worried about what other people think about me, but God, wait a minute, I've got your glory in my life. And your glory is worth far more than any human glory. And if I've got your glory in my life, then why am I so worried about my glory and what other people think about me? You assign value to it, and, and you compare it to other things, and you, and you begin applying that to your life. Or maybe you're worried about financial security, your material security, your money. What you do is you start meditating on God's care and protection, and you start praying to yourself and, and to God, and you start saying, I'm so worried about money right now. I'm worried about my financial security, but wait a minute. If I've got God's care and protection in my life, then why am I so worried about all these other things. Have you ever noticed, if you've read through the Psalms before, how many times it talks about God and it says that the Lord is a rock or the Lord is a stronghold or the Lord is a strong tower? What is that? It's meditating, but it's also assigning value to those things and saying, wait, if I've got God's rock in my life, if God is a strong tower, if God is a stronghold, then why do I need to be worried about these other things in my life? You you meditate on the aspects of God's being, but then you ascribe value to those things and you apply that to your life. You know what that does? That puts everything else in your life in perspective. Because if you were to just 
begin prayer by immediately praying about your troubles, immediately praying about your needs and all the things that you're worried about, that would be like pouring maple syrup down your throat. Yeah, you know, those things are important. And yes, you should pray about them. But, but they're not the most important thing. God is. And that leads to the last thing that we need to do in the practice of prayer. We do meditation. We do valuation. But last, we do articulation. And here's what I mean by this. Did you see in verses 3 and 4, David says, My lips will praise you, and in your name I will lift up my hands. In other words, prayer is not just like some intellectual thing that God is doing. I mean, David is doing silently all by himself while he's sitting on his couch. He's doing it out loud. He's doing it physically. He's praising God with his mouth and with his body. What's going on here? Let me go back to um, C.S. Lewis for just a moment. He wrote a little book called Reflections on the Psalms that's tremendously helpful. In one of the chapters, C.S. Lewis talks about how when he first became a Christian, he was reading the Psalms and he noticed how there are all these places in the Psalms where God says, praise me. And he began thinking to himself, it confused him. He was like thinking, why is God so needy? Why, why is God so insecure that, that he just would command us, all these people, to praise him? I mean, this is a needy God. It's kind of like, have you ever met one of those people that just can't stop talking about themselves? You know, you're in a conversation with them and they say, oh my goodness, what am I thinking? We've been talking about me this whole time. Enough of me talking about myself. What do you think about me? <laughs> Some people just can't stop thinking about themselves. And C.S. Lewis thought that's what God was like, but then he thought about it more and he realized something. He said he had forgotten how all true enjoyment spontaneously overflows into praise. All true enjoyment spontaneously overflows into praise. So think about it. Like you go to a concert, your favorite band's playing, and they play your favorite song. What happens? Instinctively, your hands go up in, your, in the air. You're praising or if you go to a sports event and your favorite team, your home team, they make an amazing play at the last minute to win the game, what happens? You are on your feet. You are praising. You're turning to your neighbor and saying, wow, did you see that? You can't help but tell the person next to you and you want to invite them into it to share it with you. It's praising. C.S. Lewis says the world is filled with praise. Lovers praising their beloved. Listeners praising music, readers praising books, people praising art and food and wine and movies and song and all kinds of things. The world is filled with praise. And when he realized that, here's what he said. He said, I think we delight to praise what we enjoy because the praise not merely expresses but completes the enjoyment. The delight is incomplete till it is expressed. So that in commanding us to glorify him, God is actually inviting us to enjoy him. Friends, do you realize what this means? When God says, praise me, it's not because he needs it. It's because you do. You need it. I want to tell you, there's nothing that your soul needs more than this. You know, psychologists will um, constantly emphasize to us the importance of self-affirmation. So they'll say, you know, when you get up in the morning... You know, the first thing you should do is you should go to the mirror, look in the mirror, and you just start affirming yourself. Hey, good looking. You're so beautiful. You're so smart. You're so confident. You're so worthwhile. Self-affirmation. Now, listen, I am not saying that self-affirmation can't or shouldn't play some role, probably a pretty small role in our life. I'm not saying that that's not important or not necessary, but by far the thing your soul needs more than anything else is not self-affirmation, but God-affirmation. 
Your soul needs that. Why? Because our biggest problem is that we're so centered on ourselves. Prayer, and especially praise, articulating this, the praise of God, is actually a way of, of, of pulling us off of ourselves and recentering us, refocusing us, refocusing us back on God. So, for instance, I heard a sermon once um, in which the, the preacher was talking about how he and his family had one of those old, um, really old-fashioned washing machines. Um, you know, the kind that had a drum in the middle, and and the clothes circulate around the drum. And he, he would said that what would happen is that once in a while, the clothes would get all bunched up on the one side of the washing machine. And that when that happened, it would just start banging, bang, 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 because all the clothes were bunched up to one side. And so what you'd have to do is you'd have to go stop the machine, open the lid, and then crowd all the clothes back around the center of the drum in order to stop the banging and get the washing machine to start working rightly again. Friends, prayer stopping the machine when your life is banging apart and refocusing everything back around God. And one of the main ways that happens is by meditating on all of the different aspects of who God is, assigning value to those things and comparing it and applying that value to all your life situations and then physically articulating that value in your life. We do this physically. So one of the things I encourage you, you know, one of the best ways to learn how to pray is just read the Psalms out loud. Just read it out loud. You will learn how to pray. It will shape you. We're going to talk more about this in weeks to come. But, you know, for instance, even if you're not comfortable, like here in public worship, you know, raising your hands in, in, um, in worship, even so, maybe when you're home alone and you're praying, you're sitting on your couch, don't just sit on your couch all the time. Don't just pray silently all the time. Maybe sometimes you get down on your knees. Maybe sometimes you even get down on your face with your arms stretched out for God. Nobody can see. You're there. It's just you and God. But I want to tell you that when you do things like that, when you involve your body in what you're doing, it has a powerful effect on you. When you articulate praise to God, when you've meditated and you've assigned value and then you start speaking these things, articulating these things, it will affect you. It will change you. It will shape you. I promise you, try it for a week. And if it doesn't work, come back to me and we'll talk about it. By the way, this is the difference between religion and the gospel. The, the religious way of relating to God is when God is a means to something else in your life. Right? You're thirsty. You've got a need. You've got trouble, challenges, difficulties, and you start praying about those things. Oh, God, help me with this. Oh, God, help me with that. It's a religious way of relating to God because your life is centered around something else, whatever it is you're pouring into your life. And, and so you pray to God in order to get help with that thing. It's not really God you want. It's that thing, whatever it is, whether it's a relationship or money or family or career, or success or whatever it might be. You'll, you'll be really obedient. You might be really devoted to trying to become a religious person, really devoted to trying to become a good person, but it's not really about God. It's about you and you trying to get the things that you want in your life. What really changes you is when God goes from being a means to something else to being the thing that you need more than anything else. And that leads to our last point. We've seen the purpose of prayer, to recenter our lives back on God. We've seen the practice of prayer, that it's meditation, articulation, evaluation. But lastly, we need to see the, the power for prayer. Because here's the question. What's actually going to make the beauty and the power and the glory and the love, all these different facets of God, what's actually going to make that real to you? 
How's it going to become, you know, not just some abstract concept that you think about, but a living reality in your life? Because here's the thing, until God becomes a living reality in your life, you can pray all you want, but it's just words, it's just gibberish. The only way that you will really be transformed is when God becomes a living reality in your life. How does that happen? Here's how. I mentioned at the beginning that that this is one of the low points in David's life. His life is falling apart, um, but why? If you know his story, you'll know that years before this, David had had an adulterous affair with a woman named Bathsheba, and then he had had her husband murdered. And even though he had experienced forgiveness for that, uh, there was a prophet named Nathan who told David that, that because you did this, the sword will never depart from your house. What that means is that David's sins, David's dysfunctions, David's faults, they had ripple effects in the rest of his life. It, it blew up his family, it blew up his kingdom, it blew up his whole life. And you see that played out through the rest of David's life. It blew up everything in his life. That's why his son Absalom was rebelling against him. So here's David, he gets out into the wilderness and he realizes that the reason I'm out here is completely my fault. You know, one of the life-changing things about prayer is that, yes, true prayer is an encounter with God, but when you really begin to encounter God, what happens is you really begin to encounter yourself, your true self, your broken self, your sinful self. When David got out into the wilderness, what he had was a gut-wrenching encounter, a realization, an honesty about the truth, about who he really was and what he'd really done to his life and everyone around him. And yet, what happens to him? What does he deserve and what actually happens to him? Look at verse 2. He says that he talks about how he went into the sanctuary. Now, the sanctuary was like the precursor for the temple. And the temple was the place of God's presence, where the place where God dwells. But the, but the only reason the temple could be the place of God's presence was because it was also the place of sacrifice. So David goes into the sanctuary to worship God. But notice what he says in verse 2. He says, I have looked upon you in the sanctuary, beholding your power and glory, because your steadfast love is better than life. Now, it's hard for us sometimes to really get the full weight of what David means when he says that. But that word steadfast love is one of the most important words in the Bible. It's the Hebrew word chesed, and it's a word that gets translated different ways. Sometimes it gets translated steadfast love. Other versions will translate it loving kindness, uh, things like that. But basically, chesed love, God's love, this is like the terminator of loves. Remember how in the movie, like no matter what you do to him, like you shoot him, you destroy him, you knock him down, like the terminator just keeps getting back up and coming after you. Chesed, the chesed love of God is like the terminator of loves, but it's the good kind of terminator. Because this is a love that never lets go, never lets you down, and never gives up. We sang about it. That's what this love is. David had an experience of God's love that said to him, David, it doesn't matter what you've done. It doesn't matter how badly you've blown up your life or the people around you. It doesn't matter how badly you've screwed up. None of that matters. David had an experience of God's love that enabled him to stand up and keep moving forward. And you see that especially at the end of the prayer and what kind of an effect that this experience had on David's life. Did you look at verse 11? Did you notice how he says, the king shall rejoice in God? All through the prayer up until that, David's talking about himself in the first person, I this, me this, my that. 
He's talking about himself in the first person, but then at the very end, he, he refers to himself in the third person. And especially he says, the king will rejoice in God. He's talking about himself, but why did he call himself the king? Derek Kidner has a wonderful commentary on the Psalms, and, and here's what he says. I think he's spot on. He says that when David says the king will rejoice, it's a reassertion of his identity. It's a reassertion of his calling. It's a reassertion that no matter what he'd done and no matter how badly he'd blown up his life, that God had not abandoned him. He was still the king. In other words, no matter how badly David had failed, no matter how badly he had blown up his life, he had such an experience of God's love and grace and presence in his life that he was able to stand up and keep moving forward. Even though he'd blown up his life, God's love was a living reality to him. I want you to know that we have an even greater resource available to us in order to experience this living reality of God's love in our own lives. What is it? You know, when David, the king, prayed this prayer, it was because he was the king who had been driven out of the city into the wilderness because of his own sins, and yet God didn't abandon him. Why? Because centuries later, Jesus Christ, the true king, the ultimate David, he was driven out of the city. He was driven into the wilderness to a hill called Calvary where he was crucified on a cross, but not because of his own sins, because he had none. It was because of our sins. And yet this king was driven out into the wilderness and he was abandoned by God because the cross is the place of ultimate abandonment because the cross is the place of ultimate thirst. On the cross, Jesus cried out, I thirst. You know, we thirst for God because we're constantly centering our lives on something other than God. And I know that in our culture, the word sin is an offensive word, but it's a necessary word because it refers to our constant attempts to center our lives on something, anything other than God. And the result of that is that we thirst. We're always thirsting. But on the cross, Jesus experienced the ultimate cosmic thirst of alienation and abandonment by God. He experienced the thirst of being totally and utterly cut off from God so that we could find water in the love and the presence of God's love in our lives. Jesus lost the living reality of God's love so that we could have it forever. Do you want to see and experience God's power, his glory, his beauty, his love? Go to the cross. That's where you see it. That's where you experience it. That's where it all becomes a living reality to you, not just an intellectual concept but a living experience of the love and the presence, the unending, unfailing, everlasting love of God in your life. Do you know what that does for you? That is not just a reassertion of your old identity. It's the creation of a completely new identity. That's what it does for you. Are you in the wilderness this morning, friends? Are you thirsting? Your experience of thirst is actually an awareness of God's presence in your life. You wouldn't even be thirsting for him right now if he weren't already at work in your life. Go to the cross. Recenter yourself on God. Meditate on who he is. Consider the worth and the value of all that he is. And then articulate praise. Let the praise of those things ring out in your souls. It's what you need more than anything else. Pursue God this week. Because if you're thirsting for him, it's because he's already pursuing you. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for um, this amazing prayer and this amazing introduction to what it means not just to pray to you, but, but to discover that you've been seeking and pursuing us in the midst of our own thirsts 
and desires. We pray this morning that you would help us to, um, to refocus our lives on you and to go to you and to consider the reality of who you are, especially as you've um, shown us on the cross of Jesus Christ. And we pray the more we see Jesus on the cross for us, the more that we would experience the living reality of your love for us and that our lives would be recentered back on you. For we pray it all in Jesus' name. Amen.